Appendix Part One of a Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. A Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison by James E. Seaver. Appendix Part One An Account of the Destruction of a Part of the British Army by the Indians at a place called the Devil's Hole, on the Niagara River, in the year 1763. It is to be regretted that an event of so tragical a nature as the following should have escaped the pens of American historians, and have been suffered to slide down the current of time to the verge of oblivion, without having been snatched, almost from the vortex of forgetfulness, and placed on the faithful page, as a memorial of premeditated cruelties, which in former times were practiced upon the white people by the North American savages. Modern history, perhaps, cannot furnish a parallel so atrocious in design and execution as the one before us, and it may be questioned, even if the history of ancient times, when men fought hand to hand and disgraced their nature by inventing engines of torture, can more than produce its equal. It will be observed in the preceding narrative that the affair at the Devil's Hole is said to have happened in November 1759. That Mrs. Jemison arrived at Genesee about that time is rendered certain from a number of circumstances, and that a battle was fought on the Niagara in November 1759, in which two prisoners and some oxen were taken, and brought to Genesee, as she has stated, is altogether probable. But it is equally certain that the event which is the subject of this article did not take place till the year 1763. In the time of the French War, the neighborhood of Forts Niagara and Sclosser, or Sclosser as it was formerly written, on the Niagara River was a general battleground, and for this reason Mrs. Jemison's memory ought not to be charged with treachery, for not having been able to distinguish accurately, after the lapse of sixty years, between the circumstances of one engagement and those of another. She resided on the Genesee at the time when the warriors of that tribe marched off to assist in laying the ambush at the Devil's Hole, and no one will doubt her having heard them rehearse the story of the event of that nefarious campaign after they returned. Chronology and history concur in stating that Fort Niagara was taken from the French by the British, and that General Prideaux was killed on the 25th of July, 1759. Having obtained from Mrs. Jemison a kind of introduction to the story, I concluded that if it yet remained possible to procure a correct account of the circumstances which led to and attended that transaction, it would be highly gratifying to the American public. I accordingly directed a letter to Mr. Linus S. Everett of Buffalo, whose ministerial labor, I well knew, frequently called him to Lewiston, requesting him to furnish me with a particular account of the destruction of the British at the time and place before mentioned. He obligingly complied with my request, and gave me the result of his inquiries on that subject in the following letter. Copy of a letter from Mr. Linus S. Everett, dated Fort Sclusser, 29th December, 1823. Respected and dear friend, I hasten with much pleasure to comply with your request in regard to the affair at the Devil's Hole. I have often wondered that no authentic account has ever been given of that bloody and tragical scene. I have made all the inquiries that appear to be of any use, and proceed to give you the result. 
At this place, Fort Sclusser, an old gentleman now resides, to whom I am indebted for the best account of the affair that can be easily obtained. His name is Jesse Ware, his age about seventy-four. Although he was not a resident of this part of the country at the time of the event, yet from his intimate acquaintance with one of the survivors, he is able to give much information which otherwise could not be obtained. The account that he gives is as follows. In July, 1759, the British, under Sir William Johnston, took possession of Forts Niagara and Sclusser, which had before been in the hands of the French. At this time, the Seneca Indians, which were a numerous and powerful nation, were hostile to the British, and warmly allied to the French. These two posts, Niagara and Sclusser, were of great importance to the British, on the account of affording the means of communication with the posts above, or on the upper lakes. In 1760 a contract was made between Sir William Johnston and a Mr. Stedman to construct a portage road from Queenston Landing to Fort Sclusser, a distance of eight miles, in order to facilitate the transportation of provision, ammunition, etc., from one place to the other. In conformity to this agreement, on the 20th of June, 1763, Stedman had completed his road, and appeared at Queenston Landing, now Lewiston with twenty-five portage wagons, and one hundred horses and oxen, to transport to Fort Sclusser the king's stores. At this time Sir William Johnston was suspicious of the intentions of the Senecas, for after the surrender of the forts by the French they had appeared uneasy and hostile. In order to prevent the teams, drivers, and goods receiving injury, he detached three hundred troops to guard them across the portage. The teams, under this escort, started from Queenston Landing. Stedman, who had the charge of the whole, was on horseback, and rode between the troops and teams, all the troops being in front. On a small hill near the Devil's Hole, at that time, was a redoubt of twelve men, which served as a kind of guard on ordinary occasions against the depredations of the savages. On the arrival of the troops and teams at the Devil's Hole, says a manuscript in the hands of my informant, the sachems, chiefs, and warriors of the Seneca Indians sallied from the adjoining woods by thousands, where they had been concealed for some time before, for that nefarious purpose, and falling upon the troops, teams, and drivers, and the guard of twelve men before mentioned, they killed all the men but three on the spot, or by driving them, together with the teams, down the precipice, which was about seventy or eighty feet. The Indians seized Stedman's horse by the bridle while he was on him, designing, no doubt, to make his sufferings more lasting than that of his companions. But while the bloody scene was acting, the attention of the Indian who held the horse of Stedman being arrested, he cut the reins of his bridle, clapped spurs to his horse, and rode over the dead and dying into the adjacent woods, without receiving injury from the enemy's firing. Thus he escaped, and besides him two others, one a drummer, who fell among the trees, was caught by his drum-strap, and escaped unhurt, the other, one who fell down the precipice and broke his thigh, but crawled to the landing or garrison down the river. The following September the Indians gave Stedman a piece of land as a reward for his bravery. With sentiments of respect, I remain, sir, your sincere friend, L. S. Everett. Mr. J. E. Seaver A particular account of General Sullivan's expedition against the Indians in the western part of the state of New York in 1779. It has been thought expedient 
to publish in this volume the following account of General Sullivan's expedition, in addition to the facts related by Mrs. Jemison, of the barbarities which were perpetrated upon Lieutenant Boyd and two others who were taken, and who formed a part of his army, etc. A detailed account of this expedition has never been in the hands of the public, and as it is now produced from a source deserving implicit credit, it is presumed that it will be received with satisfaction. John Salmon, Esquire, to whom we are happy to acknowledge our indebtedness for the subjoined account, is an old gentleman of respectability and good standing in society, and is at this time a resident in the town of Groveland, Livingston County, New York. He was a hero in the American War for Independence, fought in the battles of his country under the celebrated Morgan, survived the blast of British oppression, and now, in the decline of life, sits under his own well-earned vine and fig-tree, near the grave of his unfortunate countrymen, who fell gloriously while fighting the ruthless savages under the command of the gallant Boyd. In the autumn after the battle at Manmoth, 1778, Morgan's riflemen, to which corps I belonged, marched to Schoharie, in this state of New York, and there went into winter quarters. The company to which I was attached was commanded by Captain Michael Simpson, and Thomas Boyd, of Northumberland County, Pennsylvania, was our lieutenant. In the following spring our corps, together with the whole body of troops under the command of General Clinton, to the amount of about fifteen hundred, embarked in boats at Schenectady, and ascended the Mohawk as far as German Flats. Thence we took a direction to Otsego Lake, descended the Susquehanna, and without any remarkable occurrence arrived at Tioga Point, where our troops united with an army of fifteen hundred men, under the command of General Sullivan, who had marched through a part of New Jersey, and had reached that place by the way of Wyoming some days before us. That part of the army under General Sullivan had, on their arrival at Tioga Point, found the Indians in some force there, with whom they had had some unimportant skirmishes before our arrival. Upon the junction of these two bodies of troops, General Sullivan assumed the command of the whole, and proceeded up the Tioga. When within a few miles of the place now called Newtown, we were met by a body of Indians, and a number of troops well known in those times by the name of Butler's Rangers, who had thrown up hastily a breastwork of logs, trees, etc. They were, however, easily driven from their works, with considerable loss on their part, and without any injury to our troops. The enemy fled with so much precipitation that they left behind them some stores and camp equipage. They retreated but a short distance before they made a stand, and built another breastwork of considerable length in the woods near a small opening. Sullivan was soon apprised of their situation, divided his army, and attempted to surround by sending one half to the right and the other to the left, with directions to meet on the opposite side of the enemies. In order to prevent their retreating, he directed bombshells to be thrown over them, which was done, but on the shells bursting, the Indians suspected that a powerful army had opened a heavy fire upon them on that side, and fled with the utmost precipitation through one wing of the surrounding army. A great number of the enemy were killed, and our army suffered considerably. The Indians having in this manner escaped, they went up the river to a place called the Narrows, where they were attacked by our men, who killed them in great numbers, so that the sides of the rocks next to the river appeared as though blood had been poured on them by pailfuls. The Indians threw their dead into the river, and escaped the best way they could. From Newtown, 
our army went directly to the head of the Seneca Lake, thence down that lake to its mouth, where we found the Indian village at that place evacuated, except by a single inhabitant, a male child about seven or eight years of age, who was found asleep in one of the Indian huts. Its fate I have never ascertained. It was taken into the care of an officer of the army, who, on account of ill health, was not on duty, and who took the child with him, as I have since understood, to his residence on or near the North River. From the mouth of Seneca Lake we proceeded, without the occurrence of anything of importance, by the outlets of the Canandaigua, Honioe, and Hemlock Lakes, to the head of Canisius Lake, where the army encamped on the ground that is now called Henderson's Flats. Soon after the army had encamped, at the dusk of the evening, a party of twenty-one men, under the command of Lieutenant Boyd, was detached from the rifle corps, and sent for the purpose of reconnoitering the ground near the Genesee River, at a place now called Williamsburg, at a distance from the camp of about seven miles, under the guidance of a faithful Indian pilot. That place was then the site of an Indian village, and it was apprehended that the Indians and rangers might be there or in that vicinity in considerable force. On the arrival of the party at Williamsburg, they found that the Indian village had been recently deserted, as the fires in the huts were still burning. The night was so far spent when they got to their place of destination, that Lieutenant Boyd, considering the fatigue of his men, concluded to remain during the night near the village, and send two men, messengers, with a report to the camp in the morning. Accordingly, a little before daybreak, he dispatched two men to the main body of the army, with information that the enemy had not been discovered. After daylight, Lieutenant Boyd cautiously crept from the place of his concealment, and upon getting a view of the village, discovered two Indians hovering about the settlement, one of whom was immediately shot and scalped by one of the riflemen, whose name was Murphy, supposing that if there were Indians in that vicinity or near the village, they would be instantly alarmed by this occurrence, Lieutenant Boyd thought it most prudent to retire, and make the best of his way to the general encampment of our army. They accordingly set out and retraced the steps which they had taken the day before, till they were intercepted by the enemy. On their arriving within about one mile and a half of the main army, they were surprised by the sudden appearance of a body of Indians, to the amount of five hundred, under the command of the celebrated Brant, and the same number of rangers, commanded by the infamous Butler, who had secreted themselves in a ravine of considerable extent, which lay across the track that Lieutenant Boyd had pursued. Upon discovering the enemy, and knowing that the only chance for escape was by breaking through their line, one of the most desperate enterprises ever undertaken, Lieutenant Boyd, after a few words of encouragement, led his men to the attempt. As extraordinary as it may seem, the first onset, though unsuccessful, was made without the loss of a man on the part of the heroic band, though several of the enemy were killed. Two attempts more were made, which were equally unsuccessful, and in which the whole party fell, except Lieutenant Boyd and eight others. Lieutenant Boyd and a soldier by the name of Parker were taken prisoners on the spot. A part of the remainder fled, and a part fell on the ground, apparently dead, and were overlooked by the Indians, who were too much engaged in pursuing the fugitives to notice those who fell. When Lieutenant Boyd found himself a prisoner, he solicited an interview with Brant, whom he well knew commanded the Indians. This chief, who was at that moment near, immediately presented himself, when Lieutenant Boyd, 
by one of those appeals which are known only by those who have been initiated and instructed in certain mysteries, and which never fail to bring secure to a distressed brother, addressed him as the only source from which he could expect a respite from cruel punishment or death. The appeal was recognized, and Brant immediately, and in the strongest language, assured him that his life should be spared. Lieutenant Boyd and his fellow prisoner, Parker, were immediately conducted by a party of the Indians to the Indian village called Beardstown, on the west side of Genesee River, in what is now called Leicester. After their arrival at Beardstown, Brant, their generous preserver, being called on service which required a few hours' absence, left them in the care of the British Colonel Butler of the Rangers, who, as soon as Brant had left them, commenced an interrogation to obtain from the prisoners a statement of the number, situation, and intentions of the army under General Sullivan, and threatened them, in case they hesitated or prevaricated in their answers, to deliver them up immediately to be massacred by the Indians, who in Brant's absence, and with the encouragement of their more savage commander, Butler, were ready to commit the greatest cruelties. Relying probably on the promises which Brant had made them, and which he undoubtedly meant to fulfill, they refused to give Butler the desired information. Butler, upon this, hastened to put his threat into execution. They were delivered to some of their most ferocious enemies, who, after having put them to very severe torture, killed them by severing their heads from their bodies. The main army, immediately after hearing of the situation of Lieutenant Boyd's detachment, moved on towards Genesee River, and finding the bodies of those who were slain in Boyd's heroic attempt to penetrate through the enemy's line, buried them in what is now the town of Groveland, where the grave is to be seen at this day. Upon their arrival at the Genesee River, they crossed over, scoured the country for some distance on the river, burnt the Indian villages on the Genesee Flats, and destroyed all their corn and other means of subsistence. The bodies of Lieutenant Boyd and Parker were found and buried near the bank of Beard's Creek, under a bunch of wild plum trees, on the road, as it now runs, from Moscow to Geneseo. I was one of those who committed to the earth the remains of my friend and companion in arms, the gallant Boyd. Immediately after these events the army commenced its march back, by the same route that it came, to Tioga Point, thence down the Susquehanna to Wyoming, and thence across the country to Morristown, New Jersey, where we went into winter quarters. General Sullivan's bravery is unimpeachable. He was unacquainted, however, with fighting the Indians, and made use of the best means to keep them at such a distance that they could not be brought into an engagement. It was his practice, morning and evening, to have cannon fired in or near the camp, by which the Indians were notified of their speed in marching, and of his situation, and were enabled to make a seasonable retreat. The foregoing account, according to the best of my recollection, is strictly accurate. John Salmon Groveland, January 24, 1824. Esquire Salmon was formerly from Northumberland County, Pennsylvania, and was first sergeant in Captain Simpson's and Lieutenant Boyd's company. End of Appendix Part 1